This teaching comes to you from the team at St Mark's Darling Point, Sydney. We hope that it blesses you. It'd be terrific if you kept that passage open in front of you. That's page 933, 1 Corinthians 11, the second half from verse 17. We're working our way through Paul's letter to the, the church that was in Corinth, the baby church, which, as we know, was full of all sorts of people and all kinds of dissension. It was... Uh, not a pretty sight. There's nothing particularly romantic about the New Testament church that he's writing to, and he certainly tears strips off them in the passage that we're listening to today. So that makes our ears prick up and want to hear what he's got to say, lest his, his word be applicable to us. Let's pray as we dip into this text that God would be with us and speak to us. Give us grace, O Lord, not only to hear your word with our ears, but also to receive it into our hearts and to show it forth in our lives for the glory of your great name. Amen. Now, the French philosopher of the 20, 20th century, the great French philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre, once said, Hell is other people. Any of you who's had to deal with uh, a body corporate that is at war will know this hell. Am I right? Which is why bodies corporate operate by the principle, and also local councils operate by the principle, high fences make good neighbours, right? You don't want to know too much about your neighbours so that you can stay friendly with them, keeping us just far, far enough apart that we don't tear each other's eyes out. Other people are, let's face it, to be honest, if we're honest about it, if we're frank, a pain in the neck. They have different tastes and habits, values and ideals. They cook foods that are different, that smell different. They have needs and they have problems that demand our attention and our time and our possessions. Which is why we, especially in 21st century Australia, have become pretty good at keeping our arm's length from others because we resent the inconvenience of other people. We really prize our privacy, don't we? But I'm afraid I've got bad news for you if you think that hell is other people. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ says exactly the opposite. Being forgiven by the grace of God brings you into a community with other people who know that same forgiveness. It's a community that's also called a body. Paul will call the church a body in his letter, 1 Corinthians. The body, though, not the body of people who live in a block of flats, but the body of Jesus Christ. But let's not be romantic or dewy-eyed about it. It's not easy to be with other people in the body of Christ. Now, sometimes we wish that the whole spiritual thing was just between me and God. That's a current theme of our contemporary, uh, our contemporary world, really. I, just, I do my spirituality on my own without the bothersome complication of other people. Sometimes we wish that church were uh, set up perhaps a little bit like the prison chapel in Port Arthur. Has anyone been to Port Arthur here in Tasmania? Fantastic place to visit. They have a solitary confinement wing and they have a special chapel for the prisoners who are in solitary confinement. And what, it, what it's like is each there's, there's a number of different doors so that each individual prisoner would go in the door and then they're in a box 
where they can't see anything except for the preacher. So it's just between them and the minister. And even if there are the prisoners there, of course, they can't connect with them. There are actually deeply religious reasons why they set the chapel up this way, because they believe that a person needed, in order to reform and get better, they need to spend time on their own to not see others to do it. And, of course, they wanted to stop the prisoners mucking up with others as well. Maybe that kind of church sounds appealing to you. In fact, it's appalling, because a church like that really wouldn't be church. A church that does not do church cannot be church. As Paul tells us in this passage in 1 Corinthians 11, to be in church is by its nature to be with others. And to be church, in fact, the word that we translate church just means gathering. You can't actually be church if you don't gather with people, if you can't actually be with them. We have to practice, if we're going to be church, we have to practice life together. And especially We get to practice it when we eat that special meal that we eat here once a month, which is a symbol of what we are, the Lord's Supper. When we walk forward and come to the table and have some some wine and some bread and remember the death of Jesus. When we do that, we eat together. When we eat this meal, Paul wants us to discern the body. That's what he says, discern the body, which means... When we're celebrating the death and of the death of Jesus for us, we can't also not notice and celebrate and live out the fact that others are eating with us too. Now in Corinth, back in Corinth, in that mess of a church, that church, that ragtag mob that was full of all sorts and conditions of human beings, they were practicing the Lord's Supper. They'd been taught to do that. But everything about the way they were doing it was wrong. It wasn't really working. They were a divided church full of factions. And the way they ate the Jesus meal showed it. That's why Paul is so steamed up. In verse 21, he says, When the time comes to eat, each of you goes ahead with your own supper, and one goes hungry, and the other one becomes drunk. Now, in those days, there weren't special church buildings. People met in homes, and they probably most likely met in the home of a wealthy person because only wealthy people could actually invite a group of people around. The church gathered in someone's home, and a number of things we know from, the hist- from history can help us to imagine what that scene looked like. Firstly, a rich person in the first century uh, would have had many slaves. That's how they got their wealth. But yet slaves had joined the church along with prostitutes and people from other people from the wrong side of the tracks. So it was a bit of an interesting scene to be in a wealthy person's home and to have people who are ordinarily the, the slaves there who are now joining in the same, the same meeting, the same gathering. Second, archaeologists tells us that a rich person's house would have probably had not a big dining area like we might imagine today in our houses, but a small dining room for the elite and then another series of rooms for people from other levels of society to eat in. And they might have actually had different sorts of food. In fact, Pliny, who's one, an ancient uh, writer from the first century, he actually records going to a dinner where the, the elite ate one sort of food and then it wasn't quite as nice um, you know, maybe it was McDonald's uh, for the second tier down, and then really it was baked beans and toast for the people at the bottom. But it was all called the same party. 
Now, this wasn't rude in those days. This was normal. This was how society ran. They were just doing what they thought was the thing to be done in polite society. That's the picture we get, too, of the Corinthian church. It was a sort of bring-your-own-dinner affair, except not a potluck supper. It was sort of like you bring your own and eat your own food, which meant that some people had gourmet, gourmet meals, had ordered in Uber, whatever it was, Uber Eats, and some people, and had a feast, and some people had hardly anything. And also, clearly some people had busy work lives because they were slaves, probably couldn't knock off until late in the evening, and so didn't get there till late, Whereas the people with leisure would get there on time or early and they would start the meal. They couldn't hang on for the slaves to get there, for the riffraff to join them, and so they started eating. By the time the others had got there, well, they were full and probably drunk as well. As I say, I don't think the Corinthians thought this was offensive. I think they just thought, well, there are different stratas of society and what would a slave expect? What would these riffraff expect? Now, this may have been called the Lord's Supper, but, Paul says, it was nothing of the kind. In verse 20, to read it better than it's translated for us here, uh, we should understand it as this. When you come together, you don't really eat the Lord's Supper. You think you are, but you're not. The Lord's Supper is such a central focus for Christians that this is a horrifying thought, isn't it? The idea that they've come together, they think they're eating the Lord's Supper, but what they've done is perverting it. It's nothing like, nothing of the kind. But Paul is saying, the way you eat this meal with regard to one another is central to the whole thing. It's central to the Lord's Supper. It's not about whether someone said the right words in old-fashioned English or whether someone was wearing the right clothes or had the right status in the organisation or whether it was in a cathedral or a fine church building or whatever. For Paul, if you show contempt for the people of God, for the church of God, and you are humiliating those who have nothing as you eat, then you aren't sharing in anything to do with Jesus. This is not a meal that Jesus would have instituted, would have begun. He wouldn't have taught them that. And why does this matter? Well, it's more than just manners. As Paul shows us in verses 23 to 26, it actually has to do with Jesus and his death for us. Remember, he says, remember, Corinthians, what I passed on to you, I handed over to you, not a ceremony or a ritual, but a way of enacting the reality of Christ's death for you, a way of remembering it and making it really get its hooks into you. And remember, remember that it was the night that Jesus was betrayed that he had this dinner with his disciples. See, don't forget who was at that meal. Judas. Judas was at that meal. The one who betrayed Jesus, eating the bread and drinking the wine. And he sold Jesus out. So don't think that just taking the food and drink is like some magic trick. You can eat it and yet you can still betray Jesus. It can still not be Jesus' meal that you eat. This meal is a meal about remembering. It's a meal about memory. And what we remember and how can tell us what we're really on about. Now, last week you probably went to a, a service somewhere. You might have and you stood and 
stood for a minute in silence and said, lest we forget to recall our fallen soldiers, not to glory in war, but to remember how good and valuable and privileged we are to live in peace. But you can remember things in a poisonous and resentful way too. I was talking to someone from Northern Ireland this week who said that there's a memorial that they know of which recalls the murder of seven people during the Troubles. Only the memorial celebrates not the victims of these murders, but the killers. And people still gather at that memorial to celebrate that murder. That's a kind of poisonous memory, isn't it? Jesus said, eat this meal lest you forget. Do this in remembrance of me. And remember what exactly? Remember how? Well, we don't remember Jesus' death because it teaches us how to be resentful. See, people are always picking on Christians. So we remember this, we remember Jesus' death so that we can continue to feel resentful at the world. We remember Jesus' death because when we do, we remember that he died for us as sinners to bring us back to God. We remember that he was the innocent one who died for we, the guilty. When we eat the supper, when we come to this table and we eat it, we are filled then with what emotion, with what sense? We are filled with humble gratitude. What other attitude could we have? And When we eat it like that then, Paul says, we proclaim the death of the Lord until he comes. It's a sign that we've understood the gospel of Jesus and his death for us. But if the meal becomes a sign of our division, if it becomes a chance for me to humiliate you and put you down, to elbow you out of the way and to remember, to remind you of, that I'm just much bigger than you, then it's not the Lord's Supper that we eat. It's not the death of Jesus that we proclaim, not at all. Now, I don't know if you're aware, but this church is a very famous church and a very famous wedding took place here. In fact, two quite famous weddings took place here. And one of them, Muriel's wedding, about 23 years ago, of course, is I still get people coming around and saying, is this the place during the week? Is this the place? Can I take a photo where uh, Muriel's wedding took place? The thing about Muriel's wedding, you remember the story of Muriel's wedding? Is that It wasn't really a wedding at all. I mean, it was a wedding, but it wasn't really a marriage, was it? It was, in American terms, a green card wedding. It was about immigration. Um, that was the sort of sadly ironic, pathetic thing about it because Muriel was so happy that it was her wedding, but actually the guy she was marrying just wanted to get Australian citizenship, didn't he? The couple never intended to live together as husband and wife. It was still, though, a true and powerful symbol, but without the reality that was needed to go with it, the symbol becomes empty, becomes farcical, becomes a sort of upside-down thing. The Lord's Supper can be like that too. It's a very powerful symbol. But it's meaningless if we don't live it. It's meaningless if it's not a reality that we let shape us. And that's what Paul gets on to next in verses 27 to 32. Have a look at that, that passage there. He's, he's then saying, okay, look, this is how important this meal is, remembering Jesus' death. So how are you going to do it properly? How do we eat the Lord's Supper in the right way? Because the consequences of our eating in the wrong way, says Paul, are spiritually and physically disastrous. This is no joking matter. Because Paul says, 
Because you're eating this in the wrong way, some people are getting sick and even dying. Lives are at stake here. What could it mean? What does it mean to eat the bread and drink the cup in an unworthy manner? We better know because I don't want to do that, do you? Now, I used to think this meant that we had to do some sort of introspection before we came to examine myself, myself internally. What's my spiritual life like? So I'm to go through a process perhaps of clearing any accounts I have with God and then come forward to eat. But what follows in the passage seems to point to something a bit different. When Paul says, examine yourselves, he's not asking us to look inside. He's saying, examine your community. What's, what's beside you in this church? What is your community life like? Eating the supper is a problem when you are blind to the others who are here. When you make it an occasion for humiliating others or putting them down or dividing them, or when you ignore their physical needs. The word unworthy would actually be better translated unfitting or unsuitable, less a moral word than a community one. You don't want to eat the supper in an unsuitable way by forgetting that there are others here or by remembering that there are others here and making sure they really know their place. We need, in other words, to do as Paul says here, to discern the body. Discern the body. We see this. We need to see in this body of people, in other words, the body of Jesus Christ. We need to look at the people here and say, this is the body of Jesus Christ. We need to see as we eat together the unity we have as a single body with many different parts. Do you see your fellow believer, the one who irritates you perhaps, or the one with whom you've had a long disagreement or you just don't, uh, do you see them as the one for whom Jesus gave his life? And we need to express this in reality. If you come forward and eat and drink without discerning the body, you eat and drink, says Paul, judgment against yourself. People are dying. What does he mean by that? Well, remember that some people are going hungry while others are pigging out. There are those in the church who have nothing in Paul's day, nothing at all. The severe needs of some are being ignored. The sick are not being tended to. No one seems to be noticing them. They are not being cared for, and so sickness and death has come. The selfish and divisive Corinthian supper was a picture of their lack of care for one another. They were not caring for each other, and so some of them had got sick, and some even had died. If the Corinthians had been more discerning, if they'd been more alert to their community life, to their fellowship, there would be no need for this harsh judgment on them as a community. If their eyes had been opened, if they'd understood their unity, if they had practiced their essential equality and the unity with one another, their partnership and fellowship with one another, then there would be no need for this hard word to them. And so says Paul, when you come together, wait for one another. Because this whole meal is about your belonging to one another. Wait for one another. How can we practice what Paul teaches here. Well, 
If you've been here for when we practice the Lord's Supper, we don't tend here at St Mark's to practice it as a selfish gobble fest. That's not what happens. In fact, the tradition of just having a little bit of wine and a little bit of bread is a reflection of this passage here. It's a way in which churches over time have said, let's make it a reality that expresses the reality that we have in Christ, that people get the same and it's not about feeding our physical bodies here. Uh, it actually it actually expresses exactly what it's supposed to. But if there's any danger we have in the way we celebrate the Lord's Supper is that we've turned it into a very formal and ceremonial thing. We've emphasised the ceremonial aspects of it. And with that comes the temptation to not engage with one another, not to live out the reality that the supper, the dinner, the meal is supposed to express. It's a very Anglo-Saxon thing, isn't it? We, we tend to distance one another, to keep um, at arm's length from one another. You may think that the bread and the wine have mystical properties and that its effects are automatic as you come forward, but clearly that's not what the apostle thinks. He wants us, rather, to learn from the table and put it into practice, to live out the symbol that constitutes us, that we share. So, do we discern the body as we eat and drink? Is that something that you do? Do we wait for one another? Do we wait on one another? For example, how can we eat together here for years and years and not even know the names of those we eat with? I was at a church once uh, where I was there. I was there for four, four or five years and there was some, I used to sit at the back and there were some people who sit at the front. I have no idea to this day what their names were. I had never, never had a conversation with them. And it wasn't as if we'd just come in. We'd been there for years. And it wasn't that big a congregation. It wasn't much bigger than this. Well, that's shameful, isn't it? That we'd eat together at the Lord's table and actually not even know each other's names, not even really know anything about each other. How can we live out our life together as the body and not know each other? Could a genuine Lord's Supper be anonymous like that? Can we be in a bitter, unresolved feud with people or carry a grievance against them and still authentically eat this meal? Doesn't sharing in that meal drive us to reconcile with one another, even though it can be really difficult? I've known some great examples of people reconciling over deep grievances here at St Mark's. Uh, it, it's an extraordinary thing to see. It's a, it's a, it's a blessing when that, when that occurs. As the psalm says, it's really sweet when brothers and sisters live together in unity. It's like the dew that falls on the mountain. And it's expressed, it's expressed by our sharing together in this table. Can we, by our actions here in this congregation, be guilty of humiliating those who have nothing and, those show, and thus show contempt for the church of God? Now, it mightn't be in the way we do the Lord's Supper, but it could be in the way that we talk, that it emphasises to outsiders our social differences. We forget that overseas travel and home ownership and private schooling are not everyone's experience. Did you know that? True. We forget that these things are just way out of reach for many people, and it's kind of rubbing in their face to keep talking about it or moaning about it as I, I hear us do. If you have unresolved issues with someone in the congregation, 
then don't come to the table in a state of anger with them. A phone call during the week, agreeing to meet for coffee, hearing them out, being bold to express in a calm way what you're feeling, that is a way to express what goes on at this table. This meal is a sign of peace and reconciliation, of sharing in the death of Jesus. Don't make a joke of the sign by approaching it in enmity with your brother and sister. In particular, if we come to this table and yet there are people in our midst who are in need and suffering and we've ignored them, then you and I are in grave danger of perverting this table, this meal. That's why I want us here at St Mark's to emphasise not just children's ministry but what we call pastoral care, which really is just a technical term for the word care. We should be a caring congregation, not as a thing paid ministers do, though we do, but something we do for one another, something we do together. If this meal is to be a reality for us, then we should be really impressive in our care for each other. Our motto should be the Marines' motto, let no one be left behind. No one at St Mark's should be left behind if we really are discerning the body and waiting for one another, if we really are attentive and present with one another. And if you have needs, by the way, it's a real gift to your brothers and sisters if you are capable of sharing them in a discreet way, no one has to, you don't have to blurt out everything about yourself to everyone if you don't want to. But letting people know that you're in need, which makes us, it's difficult for us to do sometimes, is actually a present to your brothers and sisters in enabling them to serve you, just as they can make a present to you of serving them and expressing the reality of the cross in our lives, the death of Jesus in our lives. This table which we'll be sharing together in a couple of weeks' time, where we all feed on the same bread and drink from the same cup, where we remember that Jesus died for all of us, should generate in us a deep care for one another. In the church of Jesus, other people, it turns out, are not hell. They are our opportunity to experience heaven. Amen. Thanks for listening please visit our website at www.stmarksdp.org to subscribe to our new episodes, browse more resources and find more information about the community of St Mark's.